Launching astronauts to space is no mean feat. Only a handful of organizations have achieved that goal in history. But what about sending regular people to space without formal astronaut training? Sure, we've sent some rich people to space before and some civilians who learned how to become astronauts. But last week we witnessed something quite remarkable. A SpaceX mission with three very normal people who most definitely weren't astronauts and weren't very rich. The mission, called Inspiration4, was widely heralded as the dawn of a new era in space travel. But was it? And what does it all mean? I'm Jonathan O'Callaghan, and welcome to Stories from a Space Journalist. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 4. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at an amazing mission launching later this year. It's a dress rehearsal for one day saving Earth from an asteroid, but it's going to have some surprisingly chaotic results. First up though, we're speaking to Laura Forzik from the space consulting firm Astralistical about SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission. It launched last week, returning on Saturday, and saw Jared Isaacman travel to space with Haley Arkenal, Chris Sambrowski, and Cyan Proctor. While Isaacman is a billionaire, the others are most certainly not. They're a physician assistant, a Lockheed Martin employee, and a professor of geoscience, respectively. But they were chosen by Isaacman for the flight. None of the four crew actually flew the spacecraft, Crew Dragon, with the whole mission instead being automated. This, some say, could be the start of a new era of space travel, where even normal people, like these, or me and you, can go to space. I wrote about the mission for MIT Tech Review, and spoke to Laura about her thoughts. I think it's a very big deal, even bigger than the suborbital missions that we saw in July, because this is the first all-private orbital mission. And I know they use the word all-civilian. I don't like that, but (laughs) I'm going to use the word all-private and all-commercial, maybe. I don't really know the right terminology, but that's what makes it so exciting is because it's so new that we haven't even well-defined it. And it's it's really a great milestone to show that not only can a private company launch astronauts to space like we saw last year with the uh, Demo 2 mission, but also that commercial company can launch private individuals to orbit and not even with any involvement of NASA other than I think they did a little bit of training, maybe. I'm not even sure. But government was not involved except for where safety is concerned. And that opens up a new possibility for where spaceflight could go for the rest of humanity, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Just to jump back to the terminology of the of the mission, yeah, we have seen civilians go to space before, right? Obviously, space tourism, but even some kind of NASA astronauts in the past have been basically civilians. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, it's just the use of the word civilian because we use it in different contexts differently, and they're using it to mean non-governmental. But I'm more used to, I think most of us are more used to seeing it in terms of non-military or non-active military, because I think even Chris on this mission is his former military, if I'm remembering right. So yeah, they just use the word civilian, I think, to indicate that these are private individuals, not government selected. But yeah, they do all seem to have some background, at least in kind of flying or kind of related to going in a spacecraft. NASA created the term payload specialist back in, when was that? I don't remember when they created that. It was decades ago. And that didn't need to be someone who had great piloting or aerospace experience. That was meant to 
you know, like the teachers in space program, you know, meant to really indicate somebody, either a scientist or an individual who was selected by NASA, who didn't have that traditional background. And what we're seeing here is that same kind of concept, but not governmentally selected. It was a a billionaire who purchased these seats and can pick them any way he wants. And instead of picking his friends or colleagues, he decided to open it up. And I think that's laudable. And I'm hoping that we see more of this in the future. Yeah, on to Jared. Obviously, we've, we've just had two other billionaires go to space. It feels a bit different, this this third billionaire, compared to Branson and uh, and Bezos. Well, Jared Eisman isn't a founder of a company, for one thing. And so that in itself is, is different. He's just a, a paying individual, sort of like Oliver Damon's father <laughs> paid for Oliver Damon's flight. And we don't know the that amount that was paid, but that was a significant amount of money that first paid flight on Blue Origin. But since this is orbital, we can expect it to be significantly more expensive. But we saw this with Dennis Tito and several others back in the, the knots. And so what makes this one so different is that it is completely independent of government, again, except for the FAA and and those kinds of security clearances. But back when Space Adventures was launching the first space tourists or private astronauts, that was through a government government uh, training and uh, government approvals and government hardware, all and so much government involvement there. Whereas here, it is not even docking to the International Space Station. It is a private rocket, private operations, private spacecraft. It's like the next wave. It's the next transition. It's it's all an evolution, right? It's an evolution from the right stuff of the 1960s and 70s to opening up a little bit more with NASA and the payload specialist program, opening up a little bit more with space tourism and space adventures. And now we see two waves, one being completely commercial suborbital and the other being completely commercial orbital. I don't know if there's a better term than waves, but that's how I'm describing it. When we talk about space now being open to to more people, and and obviously these people are very much kind of more more civilian than before. Even then, these are three seats to space, you know, among seven billion. It's an early step, obviously, but is it getting us that much closer to people being able to more have more access to space? Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's a step forward. It's it's um, symbolic because. It's not just all billionaires, right? Even though Billionaire did sponsor the whole mission. But it's it's symbolic in the terms of how they selected it. So they selected somebody who has a prosthesis, which is not something that the government agencies um, who fly people, you know, NASA, Roscosmos, and the the Chinese space, sorry, um, CNSA, I was trying to remember what the acronym was, but um, not something that they would do, most likely. They're not at the point, even with ESA's para-astronaut, they're not just at the point yet where they are ready to take that step. And so these people represent humanity that we don't often see. I mean, a a Black woman who, yes, was a, a finalist for uh, NASA's astronaut program, but was not selected ultimately. An aerospace engineer with a family, you know, they're, they're sort of symbolic of not all of humanity, obviously, but symbolic of like the next group of people who could be representative. They're ambassadors in a way, ambassadors of the the rest of humanity. And we're going to keep seeing these kinds of missions. This is just the first step. Without someone like Jared Isaacman to pay for the other seats here, are these kind of missions possible? What other architecture could, could there be? What other way could you fill these seats aside from having someone pay for them? 
Well, we're definitely going to have to wait to see how the market plays out in terms of how much lower the prices can be and when. The ultimate goal is to get these flights to be more affordable, but we just we can't predict when that's going to happen and what that even means. More affordable, what does that mean? But for now, yes, it will have to be sponsored by wealthy individual or a an entity. Um, so I'm thinking NASA with selecting people who are not necessarily NASA astronauts to fly on suborbital missions like Alan Stern, or there's you know other research institutes that have also purchased flights on Virgin Galactic and. In terms of orbital, other entities, um, whether it's governmental or not, paying for these flights. Come to think of it, I, the only other flight I can think of that is not suborbital that is paid for privately is the Dear Moon Project, which again is a billionaire. Um, but I think we'll start to see that, right? It's just it's just such a significant price difference that we're starting to see it now with suborbital. And then I think we're going to see it more with orbital as the technology improves, as the access becomes more available, and as you know, either billionaires become more rich or the price comes down. <laughs> well, there is the, the Axiom 1 mission, I think, next year, mostly paid for. Yes, that is true. Axiom 1, yes. We've seen Space Adventures in up to 2009, uh, obviously. Oh, oh, oh the, the, the TV programs. Why am I forgetting that? Of course, we've got Discovery Channel and Space Hero and the Russian, I don't, I don't remember what the Russian TV station is, the one that's paying for the flight this year to film a movie in space. Um, so we do have that <laughs> to point to. <laughs> are we ever going to get a volume of flights high enough that that, that many people are going to be able to go to space? Like even now we're seeing maybe three, four launches per year. What is feasible? Like how far can this go? We don't know. This is just the beginning. This is the, a brand new industry in its infancy. And we're seeing the first steps. And we don't know how far this industry is going to run. We don't even know if it's going to run. We just know that we're at the very beginnings and so far so good. (laughs) Um, In my opinion, we haven't seen any accidents yet, although that'll come. But I'm looking forward to seeing how far humanity can go with this brand new industry, both suborbital and orbital. Next up, it's asteroid smashing time. The dinosaurs didn't have a space program. So, when an asteroid impacted Earth 65 million years ago, they had no warning and no way to protect themselves. Humans might not be as grand or magnificent as dinosaurs, but we're a bit better at space travel. Later this year, NASA is going to launch a spacecraft called DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, which will be slammed into an asteroid, Dimorphos, next year. The goal is to see how much we can change the orbit of it around a companion asteroid it orbits called Didymos. It will change the orbit by just a few minutes. But if successful, this could be a way to deflect an asteroid from Earth in the future, if we hit it far enough in advance. Well, that's pretty cool. A paper I covered for MIT Tech Review by Harrison Agrusa looked at a different aspect of the mission. He calculated what would happen to the asteroid itself, Dimorphos, when we hit it. And it turns out the impact, comparable to a golf cart being smashed into a football stadium at thousands of miles per hour, was going to have some pretty chaotic results, sending the asteroid tumbling out of control. It's no danger for us on Earth, but it should make for some pretty interesting science when the European mission, HERA, arrives five years later to take a look. Here's Harrison with more. The DART spacecraft is going to target the center of Dimorphos. And so it's not going to, it's not like it's going to hit it on the side and start spinning it. What happens is 
it transfers momentum to Dimorphos. So the orbit period of Dimorphos changes. And so it no longer is matching the spin period. Like with the Earth-Moon system, we know that the moon is tidally locked. And that means that the moon spins around one time for every time it orbits Earth. So we're always looking at the same side of the moon from Earth. And we think that's currently the case with Dimorphos, but once we have this mismatch between the spin rate and the orbit rate, Dimorphos will start to wobble back and forth. And this is something that we've expected for some time. It's called libration, and a lot of satellites in the solar system do this. And so it'll, you know, uniformly, depending on its shape, we'll, we'll set the frequency of that libration and it'll just wobble back and forth. And that's true for any shape of Dimorphos, as long as it starts off pre-impact is tidally locked. But depending on its shape, there's all sorts of different sort of uh, frequencies going on in this problem. There's the orbital frequency, there's the spin frequency of Dimorphos, there's the precession frequency, which is a frequency that it kind of, its spin pole wobbles, kind of like a spinning top, if you spun a spinning top on a table. And when some of those frequencies line up, you can get what's called an attitude instability. And I imagine, you know, the best analogy I can think of is you know, if you're pushing a kid on a swing, if you push them when they come all the way back at the right time, it's much easier, right? And you can amplify how far that the kid is swinging back and forth. But if you push them at the wrong, with the wrong timing, you notice it's much harder and they don't swing very far back and forth. So that's what's, what's happening is when these sort of frequencies overlap, dimorphous spin state can get sort of amplified and, and eventually start tumbling and enter this chaotic state. And so that is all strongly tied to its own shape which sets the frequency for its its libration. Assuming it's currently in a zero libration, how much libration will be added from the impact? Is that, a, is that a quantifiable number? A conservative estimate, meaning beta is one, and beta is this momentum enhancement factor. So if beta is one, that means we transfer exactly Dart's momentum to the orbit. Beta is two, that means we get double that. And the reason why you can get more than one is because you get all this ejecta that uh, flies off from the crater. But anyway, so with beta of one, we would get, depending on the shape, of course, anything between probably in the, in the ballpark of 10 degrees of libration back and forth. So as Dimorphos librates back and forth, you know, a 10 degree libration amplitude means it swings by 20 degrees left and then 20 degrees to the right. And then if beta is a bit larger, you know, beta is like two to three, we can get anything, it'd be much greater than 10, maybe 30, 40 up to 60 degrees of depending on uh, what the shape is. And, but then at that point, you you now have a lot of possible shapes lead to not only this large libration in one direction going left to right, but also it could start this tumbling motion or rolling about its long axis and it be, enters a completely chaotic tumbling state. And just before we come to that, so if you were standing on Didymos and you could see Dimorphos in the sky, having only been able to see kind of the face of it before you would now be able to see the sides of it as it kind of yeah wobbled. yeah it'd be almost as if you know if you're standing on earth looking at the moon you you'd see it sort of wobble left and right and you'd you'd be able to see you know parts of the sides the moon does this libration thing too but it's only like a degree so it's really not noticeable and it's over much longer time periods so yeah if you're standing on dinimos you would see uh, that satellite wobble back and forth in the sky. But of course, if you're on Didymos, Didymos spins around every 2.26 hours. So the other thing is if you're standing on Didymos, you're spinning around so fast, you might be so distracted by how fast you're spinning around, you wouldn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> and so going back to talking about this tumbling motion or rolling about. So in the simulations you sent me, 
it kind of wobbles back and forth. But are they only taking a snapshot of time? And, and you're saying that further ahead in time, the whole thing could rotate on its axis? Yeah. So this unstable or, or attitude instability or chaotic rotation, however you want to call it, if that does occur, it usually takes several days to tens of days to kick in. So if we start with in this relaxed state, no matter what, after the dark impact occurs, whatever the shape is, it's going to vibrate back and forth. And then after several days, it, it starts sort of wobbling and it, this attitude and stability grows and grows until it's completely chaotic. This impact is unequivocally going to cause this object to start rotating in a wild way post-impact. Is that right? Yes, but only if it has the right shape. So there's, if you look at some of those plots in the papers where it shows like the maximum libration amplitude, there, there are lots of shapes where Dimorphos remains attitude stable and it just does the simple libration back and forth the entire time for like a year. So if Dimorphos has a shape or a mass distribution that makes it possible for it to become unstable, then it will do so in about, in, in tens of days. When DART impacts, are there other spacecraft? I know we'll, I'll talk about the HERA spacecraft in a second, but does DART carry with it some other observation spacecraft that will watch the post-impact event? It's carrying on board uh, the Leisha Cube spacecraft, and that is built by the Italian Space Agency. And so that will deploy like maybe a day or two prior to impact. And so that will have a camera on board. And so it will be able to hopefully capture the impact and it'll probably fly through any cloud of debris that's kicked up. And so we'll, we'll be able to get some really interesting measurements out of that. Are we going to be able to tell from this mission alone how much tumbling is, is happening? Are we going to be able to see that? It's really hard to make these observations from the ground. So it's no guarantee that we can measure the spin state of Dimorphos from ground-based or earth-based observatories. Leisha Cube will be only be there for you know such a short amount of time because it's going to be flying through the system so quickly. So Leisha Cube will not observe this. If Dimorphos enters this chaotic state, Leisha Cube won't be there to observe it. Um, so it's not a guarantee. So that's the beauty of the HERA mission that will follow up a few years later that might be able to measure that spin state. Of course, with the caveat, if this spin state is still chaotic, maybe by then some of this energy has been dissipated through internal friction through the two bodies and, and it's might maybe achieved a new equilibrium state, but we don't really know for sure. It won't really be until the HERO mission arrives in 2027 that we'll really see what happens. Without HERO, you know, we'll know what beta was and we'll know, you know, how much we changed the orbit period of the binary. But as far as the finer details of Dimorphos' spin state, we may not know until HERO. It's been, I can't remember what you said the value for its spin was, two, two hours, is that right? That's uh, Didymos' spin rate. So the primary spins at two hours. If we assume that Dimorphos is tidally locked, then its spin, spin uh, period is 12 point something hours, which matches the orbit period. This is a bit of a weird question, but is there an ethical issue here? We are going to forever change the orbit and the spin state of these two bodies orbiting each other kind of in the natural solar system. Is that uh-huh. That's a good question. Personally, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, on the time scale of these bodies, Dimorphos could be getting impacted. I don't know the time scales off the, off the top of my head, but, you know, there it could be getting micrometeorite impacts all the time, and that could be perturbing it. So it could already be in such a chaotic spin state to begin with. You know, it's not unreasonable to think that in the lifetime of a binary asteroid system like the Didymos-Dimorphos system that it would be hit by uh, meteors on the size or scale of the DART experiment. 
in, in my mind, there's no ethical sort of difference between doing something like this or sending, I don't know, a rover to Mars and drilling a hole. It's a good thought question, I think. I mean, could you imagine if, uh, if some aliens crashed something into our moon and suddenly it started tumbling? <laughs> yeah, if the, or if they come into the solar system and find Dimorphos in this chaotic state around Didymos, they might wonder what happened. Again, this paper did assume that you know the pre-impact state was not chaotic and it was stable. But it's entirely possible that that assumption is wrong and that it's already in such a state. The change in spin state, could that have any possible effect on the orbit of the two bodies, particularly you know, as, as if it's quite elongated, the gravitational pull with the tidal effect could change? Yeah, it could have some effect on the orbit period and things like that, but it's so small that it's like, you know, it's almost unnoticeable. Are there also planetary protection issues here as well? If we were to have to deflect an asteroid in the future, would it be useful to know how much chaotic tumbling would happen after we impacted? Not really, because, I mean, as long as we can transfer the momentum in the direction we want, I don't think we really care if the asteroid's going to be tumbling or not tumbling, if, as long as it misses Earth, if that makes sense. Where it could become an issue is if we need to deflect an asteroid that's already spinning. I mean, all asteroids are spinning, so but if it's spinning really fast, for example, and let's say we hit it with a kinetic impactor, and it might take minutes or even longer for all the ejected to become to, to leave the surface and, you know, effectively transfer its momentum to the asteroid. So if the asteroid's spinning quickly, we hit it on one side and then it rotates around and then ejects all this debris in another direction, then it might make the impact less efficient at transfer momentum. But I think the bigger issues are, you know, we don't know what the asteroid's compositions are or like if they're solid bodies or if they're rubble piles. There's a lot more bigger questions before you start worrying a lot about the spin state. Are the findings of this paper going to change the profile of the mission at all? Like, are, there, are there any discussions of changing the impact site or anything to change the spin state? No, it doesn't change anything DART related. The only things I think the paper discusses it a little bit is if Dimorphos is now in this chaotic tumbling state, it could present some challenges for the Hera mission because they want to drop two CubeSats on the surface of Dimorphos. It might make some complications for Hera, but nothing that we can't work around so to speak. So yeah, yeah, the biggest challenge might be where we land CubeSats. They might bounce around and not end up exactly where you want, or you might just have to be a little more careful and take some time in, in calculating how to drop the CubeSats onto the surface. But the, the nice thing is Hera will be able to make such accurate measurements of Dimorphos' attitude that we might be able to make sort of short-term predictions of what the attitude will be in the future and then drop the CubeSats then, if that makes sense. Given that the initial encounter will be quite brief. Will we actually be able to tell how much the spin state has changed? Will we be able to measure it as DART approaches? I don't think so. It's not even going to resolve the two bodies until might be like, you know, only several hours before the impact. And so if, if it's in such a sort of tumbling state already, but that tumbling state is only rotating on the order of several hours, we may not notice it, but it's possible. I don't, I don't think anyone's looked super closely at that. Again, just because as far as the DART funding is concerned, none of this really gets in the way of, you know, level one priorities. So my intuition is that we won't be able to tell in great detail what the spin state is because DART will be going so fast. It'll only get a few, only a handful of images when, when the two bodies are actually resolved. Because for most of the flight, DART is just going to see one big blob of light. And then once it gets close enough, it'll actually be able to distinguish the primary from the secondary. 
So when Hera arrives, will we even know how much of the spin state of dimorphism we can see was caused by the impact? Yeah, we do need some sort of pre-impact or, or baseline baseline measurement. So I think one thing that this work did was make us think about how we can measure some of this with DAR images. We don't know for sure if we can measure accurately the spin state using just DART images, but we're certainly going to try. And that's it for today. Thanks so much to my two guests for the time, and thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and all our episodes so far. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Astro underscore Johnny, and do feel free to give me some feedback about the show. If you want to learn more about the stories today, you can find links to both of those in the description below. Thanks all, and that's goodbye from me. I'll see you next time in the universe. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.